All right, here we go. Calm down. Calm down. Martha, can you get a handle on the people back there for me? All right, I know it's tough. This is just like the kids. How are you? Good to see you. How you doing? Good. Good. Okay. Love you. You doing okay? All right. Good. Good. Uh, Abby, you ready to go? <laughs> you can always count on the pastor's wives to create a disturbance. Okay, um, what's that? Yeah, okay. I've, you don't ever vent at home, so I don't quite know what that looks like. Uh, let's go to Second John, verse 12, and we'll just read the last. Here's the thing. I mean, you can say whatever you want. You're a parishioner like everybody else. Go ahead. Second uh, John, verse 12, and then we'll go into Third John. These are three, as you know, three continuous letters. They might be three sermons. Because um, that's the way the epistles work. Um, just, just to sort of, I don't want to say what do you, what do you remember about Second John? Because I always ask you that. But what do you know about the beloved disciple John? I just gave you one thing. Well, I gave you two things. What do you know about John? This might then help as we finish off his epistles. He's a disciple. What's that? A fairy. <laughs> I thought it was the Lord calling to tell us about the beloved disciple John. I've often, I've often wanted to stop during a sermon. Every once in a while it happens when I'm preaching and somebody's phone goes off and I just want to stop and say, answer that and see if it's the Lord. Uh, but, you know, if it's the wrong person whose phone goes off, they may never come back. Uh, it, might, it could be. That would be scarier if the Lord answered. So he's a disciple, but remember... Um, all apostles are disciples, not all disciples are apostles, okay? So it's a bit like saying um, all pastors are Christians, but um, all Christians are not pastors. Make sense? That's sort of the back and forthness. So he's called the beloved disciple, um, but he's also what? An apostle. And if you had to tell me in sort of uh, 21st century terms what an apostle is, how would you describe it? What is that? Kind of in the church, what would his position be? Actually, it would be a little more than that. He'd certainly be a pastor. He's a top guy. He's the bishop. Uh, yes, he'd be, and the interesting thing, good, so he'd be the bishop meaning he'd have pastors under his care. Um, and then even among the bishops, you have rankings. Who's the top bishop? Peter. How do you know that? It's all from Sunday morning. How do you know Peter's the top bishop? Yeah, Jesus says so. What? On you, I'm going to build my church. But how else do you know? Whenever, whenever the, the apostles get named, who's always named first? Yeah. So he's, uh, he's the most prominent which is very important in the scriptures. You know in the scriptures, everything is about ordering, repetition, the way names are given. So for instance, in the Hebrew text, when things are repeated, that means it's repeated for emphasis. So sometimes it'll say, most merciful, you know, most merciful God, you're most merciful. And you read that in the English, and you're like, that doesn't make sense. But in the Hebrew, the repetition is trying to reemphasize it. Same thing with the ordering of names. Peter is always named first. He's named first when he's called, 
He's named first when he says, you know, feed my sheep. He's also named first when he says to the women, go and tell the disciples, beginning with Simon. Or when he says to the two men on the road, to, well, maybe not two men, the two persons on the road to Emmaus, go and tell Simon and the rest of the apostles. So he's a bishop, so he'd be under Peter someplace. Um, and what does it mean to be a bishop in the biblical text? How is that different than a priest or a pastor? See, nobody wants to answer because you're afraid. Go ahead. Oh, no, you shouldn't answer. This is not going to go well for you. Somebody else other than my wife should answer. Because what you think is she's been brainwashed at home. What, uh, what, would, be the difference, what would be the difference between a bishop? I know you are, and I'm trying to get everybody else involved. Well, that would be good. Uh, we now we talked about this for a while. What would be the difference between a bishop and a pastor? Yeah, so the bishop has um, he has pastoral and geographical G R A P G R A P H and geographical oversight. Okay? pastoral and geographical oversight. And then underneath the bishop would be the priest who has what? Oversight over his parish. And then underneath your priest would be your deacon who is a workhorse. It's true. Okay? Workhorse, one word or two? You know what I always do when I don't know? Python. There you go. He's a workhorse, okay? And this is the biblical model. Sometimes people will say, oh, it's not in the text, or you can pick any text you want. Here's the thing. This is very clear in the text. Um, and anybody who tells you otherwise hasn't read the text. But you have bishops, pastors, and uh, St. John, because he's an apostle, is primarily a bishop. How do you know this? You know this from Acts chapter 1. And if any of you have a King James, which just celebrated, I think it's 400th anniversary, if you read Acts 1, when they go to replace Judas with Matthias, that's Claire Bear, uh, when you go to replace Judas with Matthias, what do they say? Let's find one who will fill our bishopric. Okay? What else do you know about John? you got to keep all this in mind as you read what he's written. He's an apostle, he's a bishop, which means he's a priest as well. What else do you know? Yeah, good. That's good. I actually didn't think about that. But he was, um, he's given to be a son to Mary. Okay? And they ended up living, you know, maybe in Ephesus. Uh, what else do you know about John? Yeah, so he's, the, uh, he's written a gospel, which is important because that informs then what you read in here. And you see sort of the cross-pollination. What else do you know about John? Hey, oh, yeah, he wrote the Gospel and Revelation. He was busy. What else? Uh, yeah, that would be true. So, Yes, she was. Yeah. What do you know, what does Jesus, what does John call himself? The beloved, yeah, uh, good. So he calls himself a friend, and he calls himself the beloved. And both those are important. 
Um, I had someone say to me, oh, you talk a lot about being friends with Christ, and that just sounds so evangelical. I actually don't think so. Um, Remember what Jesus says to Peter when he's just made fish on the beach for him, and he says to Peter, uh, he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I am your friend. So Jesus says, do you agape me? And Jesus says, yes, Lord, I am your filios, I'm your friend. And he says, no, Peter, you don't understand. Do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I am your friend. Finally, then Jesus, because Jesus always concedes to the weaker brother, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, are you my friend? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I am your friend. Okay? So friendship with Christ is very important. But he's also called the beloved. And this, I think, is important as well. John is not the top dog. He's not Peter. But he was probably more deeply and profoundly loved than Peter. Okay? And you know from all of this, he was also fairly young. Probably fairly young. And um, what do you know about his death? Yeah, only one who died naturally. Okay? So all the other apostles were martyred. They were killed. They were you know, crucified upside down. They were flayed alive. John was the only one um, who died a natural death, although there were, there were attempts to try to kill him. And one of them, I think, was like to poison a drink, and then a snake crawled out, and he was sort of tipped off to the poison, which is why upstairs in the back window, if you ever notice this, there's the chalice window. You ever seen that window in the back? Apparently, somebody had, when it was first built, and I think you can see this in the, in the window booklet, it had a chalice with a snake crawling out because it was St. John's chalice. And then someone thought that was a little grotesque, a snake and a chalice. So they took the snake out and just put the chalice there. But this is one of the ways he was tipped off. Someone tried to poison him. The snake crawls out. And you have all these, again, these are all images of other things, the snake in the garden, the chalice of the Lord's Supper. Remember, John has his head in Jesus' lap at the Lord's Supper. So all these things come together in how these people died. Nothing... As, as Pope John Paul II has said, nothing in the world happens by coincidence. Okay? And it's the same thing here. Yes, he did. He lived, yes. Uh, so when he did die, naturally, um, it was then death in exile. Which means alone and unloved. And John, of course, if you had to sum up John's gospel and his writings with one word, it would probably be love. Isn't that interesting? So in some sense, here's the thing, he may have died a natural death, but he was still a martyr because he died without that which he knew was most important in life, love. Okay? So all of that then is your background to these texts, and these are his sermons. Um, And you have to keep this in mind. He's not like other disciples. I mean, Thomas, if Thomas would have written an epistle, would have written something very different. What would Thomas have written? If Thomas was writing an epistle, what would he have written? Undoubt, yeah, it probably would have been on, hey, I didn't get it, and you're not going to get it, but don't feel bad, it's all going to come to you, and how are you going to finally get it? You're going to touch him, and where do you touch him? At the Eucharist. That's what Thomas would have written. He may, yes, he, yes, he wanted the facts, that's exactly right. There's no sense of mystery with old Thomas. Uh, he was a bit of a modernist. Uh, John, being the young one, was probably a pomo. He probably had long hair and black fingernails and that sort of thing. Sort of an emo. I don't know, you know, that's how the church worked. Uh, 
aren't you glad you came back? See, this is just, I give jokes for about 12 minutes, and then it's like, I got nothing else to say. Um, but John has a profound sense of mystery. And, I, and how do you know that from John's gospel? What's the one thing John never gives explicitly that all the other gospels give? What's the one thing John doesn't give people explicitly in his gospel? No, he does give the crucifixion. Uh, yes, he doesn't. I should put the mic on for this. John is the only evangelist who doesn't give the sacraments. But yet, it's like when Jesus says, if you have eyes to see, let him see. If you have ears to hear, let him hear. John actually does give those sacraments. Where does he give them? On the, crucif- on the crucifix, blood and water, right? So John does have a different sense of how people come to know truth. For Matthew, it's get the facts out. For Luke, it's I need to get the right data from Mary. And for John, it's this is a profound sense of mystery, and it's only in the crucifix that you find your answer. See that? This is, this is all the background you've got to know for these texts. Okay, so 2 John, verse 12. Just imagine this. This is the end of his sermon, and some deacon is reading this. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use the paper and the ink. That was nice. Um, he's concerned about the environment, but more than that, it's expensive. And, as I told you last week, once you put it on paper, there ain't no taking it back, okay? So if he writes more, if he says, oh, by the way, tell that, that woman in the congregation to stop doing that or the man to stop fighting or whatever, all of a sudden that's going to be circulated around the town. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk to you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. And the elect sister, of course, is the other congregation. The elect lady is Mary, but Mary is also an icon of the church, Revelation 11 and 12, which also, who wrote? St. <laughs> John. See how this all goes together? This is great. But uh, you, have to, you have to get the face-to-face point. Um, that's the most important aspect of Christian communication. What, what's the context when you and I often think of doing things face-to-face? Is it good or bad? It should be good, but oftentimes when we say go and do it face-to-face, it usually is what? Yeah, tell them off, or exactly, or or we use Matthew 18 like a club. Matthew 18, you know, go talk to that person face-to-face. Well, here's the thing. We never talk about the Christian community just naturally being a community who works face-to-face. So we, um, we're always eager to tell people face-to-face when it's a sin. We're not eager to tell people face-to-face when it's something good. And that's what John's trying to propose here. Yeah, face-to-face when it's a sin, but also face-to-face when it's good. We're human beings. And something has been lost. You could write a whole doctoral dissertation on what's been lost in the technological age because what happens with emails, with Facebook, there's never human-to-human contact. I mean, yeah, it's human because you actually have to type it. But as you know, what's the worst thing about an email? You never get tone, aura. You never get any of that. And so what happens is things are sent, and once they're sent, boom, they're gone forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. So face-to-face with whom? Good. Good. So that could be the positive side. The negative side is if you got a beef, let's square it up face-to-face, which is why you notice. What's that? What well, is positive if people, yes, if people do it in the way of the gospel? which is what Paul's trying to write when he writes in 1 Corinthians, hey, I hear from Chloe's people that two people are fighting. What's the deal? Go work it out. But the the extraordinarily positive side is 
um, you are face-to-face with the living God. That's the sacramental reality, right? You're face-to-face with him. That's why I always say to the young kids who come through the, through the Eucharistic classes, when we hold up the host in the chalice and say, the peace of the Lord be with you always, you're looking Jesus in the face. That's him. That's face-to-face. And that's why Jesus says, um, you know, behold, we will see each other face-to-face. We will know as we were intended to be. We will know as we were intended to know, right? And, the, and what's called the, the, the vision of blessedness, the beatific vision, what happens in heaven is to see God finally face-to-face. Nobody can see God face-to-face. Even Moses looks at what? His rear, right? Looks at his rear end. It's not until we get back to Eden that we'll see each other face-to-face. Okay? And there's so much more to that because even in the first Eden, they didn't see God face-to-face. You'll have more in the new Eden than Adam had in the old. Okay? So, third John. Flip one page. The elder, John, and the Greek word there is the same word for pastor, presbyteros, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Again, this is all St. John. So we talked last week about, yeah, the key is love, but for John, love and truth are one and the same. Okay, Love and truth are one and the same. If you don't tell people the truth, you're not loving them, and the best way to love somebody is by telling them the truth. So to the elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Now stop there. He's talked about it going well with Gaius in two ways. What are the two ways? Yes, good, okay? Body and soul. And he says, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. What does this mean about Gaius? What has he heard about Gaius? He's probably not been. What's that? He's probably been sick. Exactly. Exactly. His soul is good, and his body is not so good. Okay? And, you know, you can, you can try to figure out what this means. Is he older? Who knows? What, you know, what's the deal? The interesting thing is, though, what does this show? There is an intricate connection between what? Body and soul. This is why in 1 Corinthians 11, certainly a book that Paul, or that Paul, yeah, Paul knew it because Paul wrote it. Certainly a book that John knew because John comes so much later. But in 1 Corinthians 11, you remember what what St. Paul says about those who eat and drink the body and blood unworthily? What happens? This is why many of you are sick and even some of you have died. See, people don't think this way. We don't often think that if your soul is bad, your body will be bad. Or if your body is bad, that can lead to your soul being bad. So just it's easier maybe to see this way. How can your soul being bad lead to your body being bad? How does that work? Uh, that Say that. Good. So now you've given me a couple different things. I would say probably if you're looking in this direction, how does your body affect your soul, that's where your Uh, grief, anger, over what? Over a bad body can ultimately affect your soul, right? I mean, this is what, I gave you this on Monday, Thursday. The classic definition of resentment is when anger sort of settles in. So you say to yourself, 
I got cancer, I'm not doing well, or you say to yourself, I just can't move around like I used to, whatever it may be, um, anger very quickly can settle itself in your soul and then affect your whole being. And this is especially true with what demographic? Yeah, older folks who have lots that hurts, right? I mean, you wake up every morning and you say, you say probably one of two things, I think. You probably say, it hurts. Why does it hurt? I wish it didn't have to be this way. And two, my guess is you think to yourself, um, it hurts. I can't get done all I wanted to get done. Has my life been a waste? Like, have I really been successful? Have I really been? This often happens. I think you'd, you'd agree. If you lose a, a spouse early in life and you have plans for the rest of your life, you say, what's my life for now? Now you fill it with other things. But see how this affects your body and your soul? And same thing with your soul. Um, it works in this direction. This is 1 Corinthians 11. If your soul is bad, your body can go bad. And don't just limit this to your physical body. Everything else that goes with this. Your relationships. Keep it down back there. Your marriages. Self-esteem. I mean, do you see how this works? Does anybody disagree and say that's not true? This is how it works in real time. So what John is saying here is, I pray it goes well with your body because it's going well with your soul. And what's behind that? Listen, if it doesn't go well with your body, at some point it may not go well for your soul. That's going to ultimately affect you. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Now, who would the brothers be who came and testified? Yeah, so it could be, it could be a couple things. Um, the brothers could be fellow Christians, and that would be sort of the broad definition. The, yeah, exactly, someone who knew them well, exactly. The narrow definition could be, hey, the other pastors. We had a pastor's conference. We had a pastor's conference. You know what happens at pastor's conferences, don't you? Just take a guess what happens at pastor's conferences, okay? What happens at pastor's conferences, guys, guys can't wait to go uh, to the social hour at night. Um, you know, yes, Leslie. That would be true, except, except, yes, good. When we all talk about all of you, that stays there. Uh, all the drinking late into the night, that can come back. No, uh, but you know what happens? I mean, here's what happens at a pastor's conference. You go to the pastor's conference, and everybody talks about what's going well, what's not going well. Gosh, I got this problem, or I got to work this out, or what have you tried that made this work? Here's the thing. This could be just a group of pastors who gather together in Ephesus for a pastor's conference. Who's the bishop? John. John gives his plenary speech. He comes back down, and then there's question and answer time, and they say, hey, I got this guy named Gaius, and here's what's happening, and this is how it all works out. This is real-time pastoral care. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So already, John has given you um, a couple definitions of his relationship. One is bishop and people. Another is what? Father and children. Now, it's so great because we talk about this all the time on Sundays and people say, I don't see it in the Bible. It's right here. Father and children and child. That's who he is. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 
doesn't mean they raise a lot of money for a capital campaign. What it means is they're being honest people. Beloved. So now how many times does he call them beloved? This is number two. And uh, we're going to get one more. We're going to get three, the trifecta. Beloved. It is a faithful thing you do in all it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers strangers as they are who testified to your love before the church you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of god for they have gone out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the gentiles therefore we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. <laughs> hey, hey, man. You're like your old man in the office. That's what he does when I talk. Okay, now good. Now think this all the way through. Now you've got more clues as to who the brothers are. Who do you think the brothers are? Fellow Christians or church workers? Sounds like church workers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, and this... Good, and this gives a little insight into this uh, into this structure in the early church. I mean, those of you who have been to places, you know, that were occupied in the early church by big cathedrals, even if you go to Rome today, or if you go to Jerusalem today, you can sort of see this. What do you know about the geographical oversight of a bishop? Did he have big spaces or little spaces? Big spaces. He may have had 15, 20, 30, 40 basilicas. Who knows how many he had? He may have had, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 pastors. But it's not like today where uh, Dan Gilbert can get in his car and drive out here in 15 minutes. It takes days, weeks, months to get there. So what happens is, because he can't be everywhere, he has a small delegation of pastors or deacons whom he sends out and he says, go check on all these parishes. Right? The guys go out and they check on the parishes and then they come back and they report to John who is the bishop. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. You treated them well. Strangers as they are. You don't know them. Who gave a witness to your love before the church. They came back to the church council and said, you wouldn't believe how those people love each other. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. What does that mean? Yeah, good. Good. Now you're 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 still you're still treading on Lutheran thin ice because you don't want to say the real thing, which is get out your money and give some cash, <laughs> right? What is remember what what does Saint Paul say? A worker is worthy of his wages, right? So what he's saying is, hey, you're part of our district, our diocese, our church. Get out your cash, send it back. Why? We need it. They need it. Don't treat them like a hired hand. You will do well to send them on, our, on, on their journey in a manner worthy of God, certainly echoing St. Paul. For they have gone out for the sake of the name. And already, again, it's interesting what John has done. Already in the first century, very early on, you have the name being equivalent with what? The person. Already. So th- this is now code word. So when they want to shorthand for the person, instead of saying... Because you know you, they've gone out in a manny wor- manner worthy of the person of Jesus Christ, they've just said they've gone out in a manner worthy of the name. Worthy of the name. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. 
I have written something, I have written something to the church. Uh, you can try to figure out how to say that name. Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. This is great. This is like, I wonder if this. <laughs> I would just, yeah, this is fair. I thought the problems were only our own. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. That is great. So if I come, this is so good. I've not read 3 John, and I don't know if I've ever read 3 John, but this is good. This should be an ordination text. I will bring up what he is doing talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to who want to, and puts them out of the church. Whoa. He had a visceral reaction to that. This is the point where John calls up AOR. That was a joke. That was a joke, friends. They had a, well, yeah. Okay. Um, now, this is so interesting. Whew. I'd like somebody to come hold the text while I write. Now, th- but this is just fascinating. I just want to observe a couple things. And I'm being serious. I hadn't, it's not like I sat in my office and said, oh, this is great. Let's see if we can talk about this for a while. I didn't actually read it before I came over. Um, I have written something to the church. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So what do you know about, we'll just put Dio, not Dido. What do you know about Dio? Ah, uh, yes, that's good. Now you're going right to the heart of the matter. Uh, let's see if we can nuance that just a bit. Yes, uh, yes, okay. Yeah. Yes. Boy, you guys are getting it all out. Okay. Try to, no. <laughs> yeah. He could be, so we know he's a leader. Everyone knows him. Now, he could be self-appointed or he could be appointed. We don't know. Yes, he does. And again, let's just, let's now let's play this all the way out. Let's be realistic. In the early church, did they have a voters meeting to appoint leaders? No. So if anybody gets appointed, who appoints them? The pastor or the bishop. And if John really feels this way about this guy, is he somebody John's probably appointed or no? Probably not. He's probably self-appointed. Could have. Could have. Although I think we're still thinking too much like 21st century Americans. Um, I I agree he could have, but it wasn't that easy to just say, I'm going to start a church. Yep, good. He could have been one of the first to sort of welcome the disciples in. Okay? Everyone knows him. But he says he puts himself first, and what does he not do? Doesn't acknowledge. Now, he doesn't say the authority of the church. He says, doesn't acknowledge our authority. He doesn't acknowledge our authority. And who? Uh, yes. So let's see, verse 9. Here it says, my authority. Exactly. Yes, doesn't acknowledge the authority of Amos, which is me, not us, me. Okay? 
So he doesn't acknowledge John's authority um, as the bishop. And by extension, this is the way bishops work, they give their authority to the pastor. Okay? So he puts himself first and does not acknowledge our authority. All right? So he is self-appointed. He probably isn't a clergy person. He may be, but he probably isn't a clergy person. But he's taken the role of leader, and what does he do? He doesn't acknowledge the authority of the bishop. So what do you have? You have a layman. Well, you don't know. He, he, does, he would say he's one of our brothers if he was a priest. Can't be a pastor. He'd say brother because he's already called them brothers, pastors early on. So he's a layman, self-appointed, who's put himself over the bishop. Yeah, because what you have here, he talks to his fellow workers. Now, keep going. If I come, I will bring up what he is doing. Now, this gets back to the end of Second John, which is he says what? When you talk, do it. No more pen and ink, exactly. Face to face, which is then an echo of Matthew 18. When I come, I'll talk to him about this. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. And then it says here what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And right there, that gives you another tip off that it's layman against clergy because he talks about us and him. The us, by referent, is to the brothers and the fellow workers who are by definition in the text, at least some type of pastor, bishop, pastor, whatever. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. Now, he gives you two things to describe the thing he's doing against them. One is, he says wicked, and then he says nonsense. What does that mean? Uh, good. So what's the second thing he just said? Yeah, so nonsense would be, what is the, I mean, the most basic definition of nonsense is it doesn't make sense. So it's not true. A lie doesn't make any sense. So it's a lie, it's nonsense, and by using wicked, what does that mean? It's evil. Okay? So you can sort of translate it loosely this way. If I come, I will bring up what he is doing face to face against us. And the against us has to do particularly with his authority. That's what he says this guy doesn't acknowledge. He doesn't say, he talks wicked nonsense against the color of carpeting I chose. <laughs> right? He talks wicked nonsense why he doesn't acknowledge our authority. Exactly. Doesn't even uh, welcome the bishop's representative. Right? And as you know from Scripture, um, the Hebrew word shaliach, which is also used for angel, is, is particularly the messenger of the, of the one in charge. So uh, John has sent out his angels, his messengers, and they've said, stop right there, right? This reminds you a little bit of uh, what's happening with that priest downtown. Love you. Yeah, exactly. Where, I mean, they've said, we'd love the bishop to come talk to us. But you know deep down, 
They don't really want the bishop to come talk to them, right? Uh, and now, and now what's, what's interesting is, what has the congregation said? If he gets kicked out, we will stop being Catholic. Yeah. It, exactly. But this is the kind of, I mean, you saw, and again, I, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, it doesn't matter. The point is you see the energy and enthusiasm those people have for their own guy. That's in some sense what's happened here is they've rallied around, not everyone, but they've rallied around, some people have, around this self-appointed man. And what's happened is then when other people come in, they say, stop right there. You can't do that. So verse 10b, and not content with that, so not content with telling evil lies, what else does he do? He refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want who want to and puts them out of the church. So he's created he's created his own cult. Yeah, exactly. He's created his own cult. You can't come in, and if you want him in, you're out. Right, exactly. Exactly. So what's happened is he's basically imagine it this way. He said, We're not going to have him in. There are some people who say, we really should have him in because the bishop sent him. And he says, if you want him in, you're out. Okay? Yeah. Oh, I'm. Uh, keep going. Tell us a little more. Because I think you're right. Yes, right. Isn't that great? Yeah, exactly. Well, yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you've got to think, you know, John may have a sense of that because John was probably the only one who could be considered a real son of Jesus. You know what I mean? There's, that's all in the back of his mind. Like, they don't welcome me. They don't welcome anybody else. What's going on? Yes, Sandy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. If you've ever been a pastor, the most nerve-wracking moment is when the bishop shows up unannounced. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And thankfully, John's not going to try to catch him off guard. But John is saying, I'm just going to show up. Right? So I sent a letter. I sent a letter. And uh, as you know, in the early church, and this is important, this is all the context behind the letter. In the early church, you can also read my dissertation, pages like 2 to 267, a letter actually bears not only the authority of the one who wrote it, but actually bears the person behind it. And so by rejecting his letter, they've also rejected John. They've also rejected John. And you know this. I mean, just go away sometime, go to a different country without your family, and they tuck a little note in for you, and you open up and you read it, and all of a sudden you're 3,000 miles away or 4,000 miles away, and you feel like your family is there. Exactly. Why? Because a letter bears the person who writes it. This is precisely what's happened in John 3. Third John, he's written a letter. They've rejected it, meaning they've rejected John. If you reject the bishop, then you're, if you say no to the bishop, which means no to the pastor, you are not church. You can't be church on your own. And so John is so fearful of this that now he says, I'm going to come in person, face to face, because he's spoken against us. Evil, lies, he's created his own cult. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Well, he could be, you know, maybe, maybe Gaius is the real appointed head of the church. And this guy is sort of, somebody said usurped. Someone has sort of elevated themselves. And he's given Gaius a heads up. Hey, I just want you to know this is coming. Like, I've written to him. I've tried to stop him. He doesn't receive it. So if I show up someday, just know why I'm there. Exactly right. Yeah, you know, I mean, here's the thing. This is real life stuff. You know how this works. 
Exactly. Yeah. It's oh yes, exactly. The worst thing that can yeah, the worst thing say that again? It could could be why he's sick, yeah. But go back to Gaius. What was Gaius what was what was Gaius virtue? He said what? You speak the truth. Yeah, you speak the truth. You may be sick in your body, but you're not sick in your soul because Gaius equals truth. And there may be some sense in which he's playing these two off against each other. He's saying to Gaius, I love you because you're honest. And for all of us who are listening in now 2,000 years later, 1,900 years later, he's trying to show us the, the drastic contradiction between these two human beings. But who in all of this takes the brunt of it the most? Gaius. Yes. Exactly. Exactly right. That's exactly right. Because what's happened, yes, and this is just, think about your own life in the church. If you talk to someone, if you're here and you talk to someone here, self-appointed, and all the stuff that goes with it, and you hear what they have to say, you know, Gaius, that John is right, but what does this do to you? It affects you. Right? It affects you. Because why? It's wicked and it's nonsense. This is what John says. Okay? And that really has power over people. So partly it may be to give Gaius a little strength. Don't worry, buddy. You're going to be okay. But also I want to show you here the power of sin. We often think evil and sin only affect the people who are caught up in it, like this guy, Diotrephes. But actually the guy who's talked about the most as having suffered is the guy who's speaking the truth. And he doesn't give us very much. He only gives us a verse. I hear you're sick in your body. Um, but I'm glad you're not sick in the soul. Okay. Verse 11. Beloved, third time, which is important that he says it three times, that gives sort of a Trinitarian character to this. And they would notice that in preaching. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. So now he's not writing to just Gaius. He's writing back to the church. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Now, I would, I would bet Demetrius is one of the guys he sent. And when he says he's received a good testimony and from truth itself, who do you think he's referring to when he says from truth itself? From Gaius, probably. Yeah, so you've talked, you've talked to people in the congregation. You've talked to Gaius, and also... Um, we add our testimony as the bishops. And you know that our testimony is true. Why? Because we stand in the place of Jesus. But, but the most important part there is verse 11. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Because what happens in a congregation is when evil begins to dominate, which John appears to be saying is happening. Why? He's kicking people out who aren't evil. <laughs> so all that's left is sort of this cult group who thinks the same thing as Diotrephes, when that happens, people begin to imitate their leader. And in this instance, their leader is wicked and nonsense. Yes. Uh, two things. Um, yeah. So partly the from is like of in Greek. So, and you know that it often something like you have been baptized of God. It'll sometimes say it that way. And we say, that's kind of strange. So partly, I think this is a reference to the Christian. You're from God, meaning you're of God. God has given birth to you, baptismal. This is John's gospel. Well, here's the key, I think. 
Who is the one who is ultimately from God? Christ. So he's not from God. Let's just put in Christ there. And then what does John say in his gospel of Jesus? Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And it's the whole language of seeing there. So he's playing that off. He's basically saying, uh, unless you do good, you're not from God. Who's the one who ultimately did good and is from God? Christ. If you don't do good, then you've not seen God. Why? Because you've not seen Christ. So John, whenever he's saying something nice, he always puts the onus on Jesus. <laughs> whenever he's saying that's not good, he's putting the onus on you. And you have to then find your spot. This is Romans 6. You have to then find your spot in Christ. This is, this is the way Paul talks, the way John talks, this is the way all the epistles talk. They always let Christ do these things. Christ has faith. Christ believes. Christ makes atonement. And we say, well, where's our spot? Your spot is... Exactly. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, probably from Gaius. We also had our testimony, our witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, really, <laughs> but I would rather not write with pen and ink, okay? I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you, the friends greet you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. And verse 15, I bet the word is phileos. I'm sure it is. Yeah, philoi. So, Irene, peace be with you. Um, and greet the friends, because all the friends here greet you as well. And he sort of changes his tone. He basically has from 9 to 11, where he's sort of going after Diotrephes. But after that, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. That can be read one of two ways. Either he's writing to the congregation, don't worry, I'm coming, or he's writing to Diotrephes, get your facts together, because I'm going to be there. Okay? Do you have questions about that in the next nine minutes? No, I don't. Um, I want to say he's named someplace else, but I, but I, can't, I can't envision where that's at right now. You got a, if you've got a dictionary, I don't have one in this book, but if you've got a dictionary, look up Demetrius and see if he's someplace else. Probably a different guy? Yeah. It so it probably isn't the same guy. Um, so who knows? You could ask him when you get there. Anything else about this? Just if you, had to, if you had to summarize then, how does John deal with the trouble? I mean, what's the first thing you notice? He doesn't shy away from talking about it. I mean, that's the most interesting thing. He doesn't shy away from telling this guy or telling the congregation there's something wrong here. But he also doesn't, well, I should say this. I'm a little surprised by how forceful he is in going after the guy. Like when you say about someone in a letter, he's telling wicked nonsense. That's pretty strong. Uh, but he also doesn't destroy the guy. His goal is to try to bring the guy all the way back. And how is he going to do that? He knows it's best face to face. Uh, but he never says, interesting, interestingly enough, he doesn't say, I'm coming to try to restore him. In fact, the way he tips you off, he says, what about this guy? What's he been doing to Christians? He's been kicking them out. It's almost like he's setting the stage where I'm going to come and we're going to have a chat. And if he doesn't get on board, then he can go. Because this is not his church, right? And you saw that in the, uh, you saw that in, it was 1 John or 2 John, where he talks about, 
some people shouldn't even be allowed in the house. Now, I don't know how old John is when he writes this, but it probably is. It's toward the end. I mean, it's got to be 70 or 80, I would guess. Um, so, you know, that's 50 years after Jesus. He's probably 70 years old at this point, 60 years old. I mean, this is a guy who's been a bishop and a pastor for a long time, and he's not the young kid he was next to Mary at the cross. And he's sort of saying, hey, I'm the old man, and here's what we're going to do. You notice anything else about all this? Yes. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So he's trying to set up that ultimately the answer to the lie is to tell the truth. Because, yeah, you're right. His authority on its own doesn't mean a lick of anything to this guy. The, and, uh, go ahead. Exactly. Good. And I hadn't thought about that. But part of the, tr- part of the thing is, as a bishop, acknowledging when it's time to act and when it's not time to act. There are some situations where you say, water under the bridge. No big deal. And there are some situations where you say, if I let this go, I'm going to destroy the whole place. Exactly, yeah. Soon it's just going to be him and his wife left, right? I mean, that's all there is. Maybe not, yeah. You never know. But yeah, you're exactly right. There, there does cross a line, and if you had to sum it up, it seems like with John at least, and I think it's true of the rest of the scriptures, but with John, when it comes to the point of untruth, of lie, that's when he, that's when he acts, right? That's when he stands firm. You can do a lot. Like he'll say to people, ah, oh, you ought to love each other better, be friends with each other. He knows people are human beings and they're going to have rubs and all that. But the point is when it comes to untruth, we've not seen him yet in three books react this way. The first time he reacts is someone's told a lie. That's very interesting. Because what you know is untruths will ultimately destroy a place. Right? Having bad days does. And people have bad days all the time. But an untruth will destroy a congregation. Because Jesus is truth. That make sense? Anything else? Okay. Let's pray and we'll let you go a couple minutes early. I think we don't... Uh, what's next week? Do we meet one more time? One more time. No Memorial Day. And then school's out. So next week is the last week. And we'll... We'll think of something. Maybe we'll sing hymns or something. I don't know. We'll, we'll have fun. We could, yeah, let's do Jude. That's fine. Sure. One more. One more book is fine. One more chapter. We did four. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. As long as we don't tell them what they were. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. Okay. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, thank you.